Hi ladies, it's our last day of convention. I hope you've enjoyed this week as much as I have. I hope you've learned a lot. I hope you've been encouraged. I just want to introduce what we're going into now, which is a Q&A. It's kind of different from what we're used to because it's all on video. Every segment has been recorded at a different location by a different lady, but all the wisdom is still there, all the encouragement, all the challenge is still there. And I just pray that it will be a wonderful time for you to be able to glean some tips that will help you. And I just ask that you would um, just prepare your hearts to hear what God has for you. And I look forward to our last session with Logan this afternoon and then the closing of the convention tonight. Thank you so much for coming this year. And Lord willing, we will see you in Lincoln, Nebraska next year. Candy Farr. My husband and I are missionaries with Biblical Ministries Worldwide in Johannesburg, South Africa. We've been here about eight and a half years now, and this is your summer season probably, but our winter season. So we are freezing, and our houses are quite cold, so that's why I have all these layers on. Uh, we have uh, six kids, and I was asked this question, advice on raising teenagers, which is a great question for me. Uh, until recently, I had four teens at once. My oldest son just turned 20, so no longer a teen, but I have a 14, 16, and 18-year-old, and we absolutely love having teens most days. It's a lot of fun. And the thing about raising teens is that uh, often people make it sound scary, but actually, you know, you have raised these kids up all the way through. So in these early years, if you're a young mom with young kids, you're laying that foundation in the early years of trust and obedience, and you're working with your kids on the idea that there is authority in this world. God is the ultimate authority. God's word is the authority in our lives, and they need to learn to obey. And so the early years, I often felt with my little ones that it was more like external obedience. I couldn't always tell exactly what was going on in their heart. But that's okay. They still need to learn to obey. They still need to learn to submit to their parents because God says so, and also ultimately to Him. And then as they get older, they start to develop their own thinking, and that's great. And they also start to become more independent. We want them to think for themselves. Um, into the early teen years, there's no longer this, uh, we don't ask for always unquestioning obedience to us anymore. We want to have some discussions respectfully. We want to see how our teens are, are feeling in their hearts. If they're actually making choices based on God's word, on their walk with him, on uh, submitting to the Holy Spirit. So then we feel like in the early teen years, we're starting to look at that real heart response. And is it an internal heart response um, based on their walk with Christ? And always, 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 we make an effort to point our kids to Christ, push them to Christ, ask uh, God for wisdom, in situations that they're unsure about, pray together. We're starting to want to see them walk 
with the Lord and to see what's happening on the inside. And then the teen years move on. We find ourselves coming more alongside our teens. We're like walking beside them, mentoring them, discipling them, helping them think through what what does hard obedience look like? Um, We want to bring glory to God in every situation in our lives. So we're, we're walking with them, we're talking with them. And something kind of funny that I realized in my, with my teens is that they're very good thinkers. Uh, took me by surprise at first because, you know, we, we teach our kids to obey. We kind of expect them to think like we think, but sometimes they don't. And it's taught me to be humble and to listen to my teens because sometimes their ideas are better. And sometimes they're smarter. And it's really been wonderful to have my teens in their later teen years um, input God's truth and often God's grace into my life as a mom. It's just, it's been one of the biggest blessings I've ever experienced. And that comes from really inputting in those early years, teaching them to observe God as their authority, to submit to God, to submit to his word. And then in these late teen years, we really want to see those kids um, walk with Christ apart from what we believe. We want to see that they've internalized uh, what God says is true. We want to see they can make mistakes. We all make mistakes, but we want to see that they're ready to be on their own, that they're walking with the Lord, that they're uh, developed continually developing that relationship with him. And then another thing in the late teen years especially that I find besides that humility that I need to be humble and listen to them is flexibility. And I say that because teens uh, need to talk when they want to talk. Sometimes it's late at night when I'm very tired. I'm a morning person. They rarely talk to me then. It's always when I'm tired, I feel like. But God has challenged me to just put aside my stuff, stay awake, listen, because they need me to hear them, to think through things with them, to talk through whatever situation is on their mind, maybe to pray with them, uh, whatever the case may be. So humility and flexibility are a big deal in these teen years. Two verses that really come to my mind in regards to my teens. Uh, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And that's our prayer and our heart's desire for our teens, that they be overflowing with thankfulness because of how they were um, taught throughout all these years at home, that they're rooted and grounded in Christ. And enjoy your teens. It is very fun. They've been a huge blessing in our lives. Hi, I'm Bonnie Haskell from Hanford, California. My husband, Bud, and I have ministered in Grace Bible Church for almost 33 years and in ministry together for 43 years. I count it a blessed privilege to serve alongside my pastor husband. My assigned question is, what advice do you have for younger women today just starting out in ministry? I've divided my answer into three categories. 
One, your relationship with God. Two, your relationship with your husband. And three, your relationship with your church or ministry. One, your relationship with God. Always remember that you first belong to God. It is imperative that you maintain a close relationship with God. You do what you do because you belong to Him. You love Him with all of your heart, soul, and mind first. No one, not your spouse, children, family, church member, should come before Him. When this relationship is given priority, everything else will fall into place. You serve your God by serving others. And when I remember I am serving God and not people, I am better able to see my sinful reaction to responsibilities, personal, marriage, family, ministry. With this perspective, I am less likely to complain that I won't be doing whatever or be at this meeting if I weren't the pastor's wife. Number two, your relationship with your husband. Our role as a ministry wife is to be at one with our husband, the shepherd. I highly recommend the book, One with a Shepherd by Mary Somerville. It's a life-changing book, no matter where you are in your journey as a ministry wife. Many of the ideas that I'm sharing today stem from absorbing the principles learned in this book. The first part of the role that I wanna look at is a prayer warrior. Who else knows how to most effectively pray for your husband? No one. No one else knows the joys and sorrows he is carrying, the embryo of a dream that can't yet be shared, what physical challenges he is facing, what frustrations he is dealing with, what spiritual challenges he is encountering, and so forth. You have insider information, and you can be his best prayer support. We should also be his encourager, be his cheerleader. Don't hold back with encouragement. Your words of encouragement mean more to him than a thousand words from anyone else. He knows you know the real him. And when you look beyond his shortcomings to give him the affirmation he needs, it has great value. He most likely hears more criticism than heartfelt encouragement. Your sincere words mean so much more to him than the good sermon pastor by a congregant at the door. We should also be a sounding board. Listen, let him talk out his ideas. Let him hear himself say it first to you. Try to patiently listen and wait before giving your feedback. And talking about that waiting, wait until he asks or until Tuesday. A good sounding board does need to be honest and present opposing views. Sometimes you are the only one that can kindly tell him the hard truth. But may I suggest that you pray first? Pray about what to say, how to say it, and just as importantly, when to say it. Sunday afternoon is probably not the right time to bring up what might be viewed as a negative comment or criticism. When we were preparing to enter the ministry, I was given the advice to wait until he asked for my thoughts on his sermon or wait until Tuesday to bring up unsolicited opinions. Learn to read your spouse. Be especially cautious with your words when he is vulnerable, exhausted, or feeling under attack. 
We also need to really be careful about being the inside track for others. Sadly, there are people in your church who will use you to obtain the pastor's ear to further their agenda or pet project. Because we love those we serve, we want to help them, we want them to be happy, and honestly, we want them to like us. We need to be on guard for this and not fall into the trap of being the channel for circumventing chains of command or biblical principles. Practice saying, you will need to tell pastor this yourself and practice it with different tones, varying from enthusiasm to quiet firmness. Running interference for your pastor, for your husband, is not helping him. And then be careful not to add to his burden. Be the best church member you can be. Think about how you want others to treat him and then do that yourself. Because we do have his ear, we can unwittingly add to his burden by taking advantage of our position. If other church members need to fill out that form, so do you. Sometimes I start a request like this. If I wasn't your wife, how would you advise me to, and then fill in the blank. Lastly, let's go to number three, your relationship with your church or those you serve. When you are working at being the best church member you can be, no more, no less, most relationships with those you serve will fall into biblical lines. When you are observed honoring leadership, you will re be respected as a godly woman. When there are conflicts, deal with them biblically. Let your church know you love them. They will see and prayerfully follow your example of first taking care of your own spiritual health and then your marriage and family. My personal prayer is that I will live a gracious and flexible life before our church while upholding the word of truth. Sometimes I'm asked if I would still want to be a pastor's wife if I had a life redo. Setting aside that I, of course, choose to be married to Bud, whatever his calling, my answer is a resounding yes. My prayer is that you will have that same answer. As a ministry wife, will you experience heartaches, disappointments, hurts, and conflicts? Yes, but you will also have joys, blessings, enrichment, and love. Greetings from Pecatonica, Illinois. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Christy Mock. I serve alongside of my husband as he pastors a church here in Pecatonica and is also the Vice President of Ministry Operations for Slavic Gospel Association. We have served together here in the United States and also in the former Soviet Union for the past 18 years. I have also given much of my time to a local pregnancy center. So the question, when talking or counseling with another woman, how do you balance grace with truth, when to listen, and when to speak truth? When I first read this question and was considering how to respond, I immediately thought of how many times I have sat with the young women in the counseling room of a pregnancy center over the years. I would hear over and over again of how hard their lives were and why they thought they had ended up sitting in this particular counseling room. It was in those first moments that I would listen, not just with my ears though, but with my heart as well. I wanted to make sure that I was hearing their heart first. I wanted to hear the hurt but all the while knowing the end result would be to point them to Christ. It is important for the women we talk to or counsel to know that we are available to them and that we care. 
They are not a burden to us. But it's a very fine balance to know when to transition from listening to speaking truth. So we start with grace and we end with grace. We show the love and grace of Christ when we open our hearts to the women who come to us for help. We don't listen, though, by thinking of what we will say next, but instead we listen intently. We pay attention to their circumstances. We can't assume that we have the right words until we hear what they have to say. The words we speak to a pregnant teenager will be much different than the words we speak to a woman who just lost her husband or to a woman who is struggling in her marriage. We need to listen without prejudice. We need to remember what they share. We are then able to acknowledge whatever it is they are going through. We can sympathize with them and maybe even weep with them. Within this listening time, we also have an opportunity to ask questions in order to learn of their concerns, opinions, or needs. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. Sometimes, women don't like to share right up front. But by asking questions, we are giving them time to reflect so that they may be more willing to share more deeply. Christ was such a great example of showing love and concern as he listened to those who needed help. He showed this in John 4 with the woman at the well when he lovingly interacted with her despite culture, gender, racial, or moral divisions. He allowed her the time to trust him and wait for her to share. He showed great compassion in John 11 as he wept with Mary when he saw her weeping for her brother Lazarus. Scripture says he was deeply moved in his spirit. And then he showed himself to be available as he even stopped en route to listen to the story of a woman who touched his garment in Mark 5, 22-34. And he asked questions, even though he already knew the answers. He asked a blind beggar in Mark 10, 46-52 what he wanted Jesus to do for him. And he asked a lame man in John 5, 5-9 if he wanted him to get well, if he really wanted to get well. And he even sometimes asked the disciples, what do you think? Or who do you say that I am? Once we have listened and asked the questions, then we are able to move on to the transforming power of God's grace and truth. We can't leave these women where they are or enable them to continue down a path of destruction. We have to point them to scripture and allow the spirit to work in their heart. For some ladies, it is most comfortable to pull people into their problems. That's when it's easy for us to get sucked in. Many women only want to come to us for their voice to be heard. Most times, these particular women don't necessarily even want to change, but instead just like to talk. That's when we have to be strong and we have to draw that line, that balance of moving forward into the hope before us. Other women come completely broken and so ready to have truth spoken to them. Whatever the circumstances may be, if we have listened well, we can begin speaking truth in reference to their particular situation. We can go back and repeat some of the things that they have shared with us. We can use examples from the Bible of how people responded to a similar situation. We can share some of our own life experiences of how we have trusted in Christ through hard times. By doing this, we make it personal. Hopefully, we have opened a door to either share the gospel with an unbeliever or to admonish a believer to move forward in a biblical way. With gentleness and kindness, we lead them down a path of recognizing their sin. Once again, we don't leave them there. But instead, we show them the path that leads to hope and sanctification. By opening up the word to them, we are able to show them how their life can be different.
And the really cool part in all of this is that God leads. His spirit is with us, prompting and guiding us. If we are prepared in our hearts and open to his leading, he will guide us. If in our listening, we are being still enough to hear him, he will speak and give us words. If we are prepared in the knowledge of his truth, he will use us as his witness and testimony of grace. As I shared in the beginning of sitting in the counseling room with many young, scared, pregnant women, I can tell you that I didn't always say the right thing in that room. There were many times after she had left the building that I would say to myself, Oh man, I should have said this or I should have said that. But God is faithful. He's sovereign. He ordains each meeting that we have with these women. Through his spirit and through our obedience and sharing scripture, he opens the hearts of these women to move per his purpose and plan. So in closing, remember these things. First and foremost, pray. Ask God to be with you as you counsel. Ask him to give you the right words and to be discerning in your conversation. Listen, not only with your ears, but also with your heart. Ask questions that lead a woman to share more about her situation. Show compassion. Let her know that you really care about what she is going through. And then make that transition to sharing truth. Once again, we can't leave a person in, her, in their sin. We have to move them forward in truth. Share the gospel message. Admonish and encourage them in the hope before them. That's where true change comes from. Thank you all, and I hope you're encouraged by this virtual conference experience. Bye-bye. Hi, my name is Monique Caballero, and I am from Community Bible Church in Anaheim. And when we began at that church um, about 14 years ago, um, there was no children's ministry. So um, what I want to talk a little bit about is what to do if you don't want to do too much ministry, but there is no ministry for your children. So um, just thinking about having your kids in um, service along with you and um, trying to make that um, something enjoyable for them as well as for yourself. So um, definitely... Um, um, going over expectations with your children um, ahead of time, kind of the behavior you expect them to um, exhibit during um, service while they're sitting next to you. Practice at home, um, sitting still and just listening um, so they get used to the idea of that. Um, a picture Bible for little ones, I think, helps um, if you know what's going to be um preach that that week then you can find um that portion of scripture in their picture bible so they have something to relate to mommy has bible they have their bible um something for them to take notes with um you can use fun different notepads um for my little guy um, a sketch pad so that he can draw what he's listening to there are also um, lots of um, sermon note pages that you can print for kids online something that would have um, a space for a picture um, this one has boxes where you can mark off how many times they hear the word god or bible or jesus something like that is helpful um, keeping little hands busy um, you can use a whiteboard. That might be something um, 
interesting for them, something a little bit different, they can draw on that, erase it and draw again. Um, also, maybe stickers to decorate their note pages. And I usually take off the borders because it's hard for those little fingers to get, to get the stickers off. So that's helpful for them. Um, also, some other things to keep little hands busy. Maybe a shoelace, a pipe cleaner, and some beads. Um, I've used regular beads before and they just keep busy doing that. Uh, foam beads are good because those are quiet and um, don't make a lot of noise while you're sitting in service. Um, let's see, there are lacing cards. Um, you can purchase lacing cards. You can also make them at home with different images um, that interest your children. Um, little uh, foam pieces, either sticky backed, you can use those on cardstock so that they can uh, make little designs while they're sitting there. Um, also, maybe just a piece of felt with plain foam and they can uh, make little pictures and images while they sit listening to you. Um, definitely pray about that and um, just seek the Lord and giving you wisdom and uh, what to do in that stage of life, stage in your church. Um, also, um, a piece of wisdom I've heard, I don't know where I heard that from, but it was practice in private behavior you expect in public. And I have found that to be um, so helpful to me in just practicing what I want my kids to um, how I want them to behave in different scenarios. And church is definitely one of those places we want to practice um, certain behaviors. And so I hope those things have been helpful for you. And yeah, um, I hope that was helpful. Good afternoon, ladies. Wendy asked me if I would be willing to participate in a question and answer seminar. And this is the question she gave me. What is my greatest joy and my most difficult challenge in ministry? To narrow down just one thing that brings me my greatest joy in ministry can be so difficult because there are so many things in ministry that I just love. But if I have to name just one thing, I think I would have to say it's the opportunity to share the word of God with our women. I love seeing women who are hungry to grow and to know the Lord Jesus more uh, deeply, more intimately. I've been privileged to lead many Bible studies throughout the years, and I truly love it. And one thing that really thrills my heart isn't simply the leading of the study, but it's the opportunity to get to know these women, to develop a closer relationship with the women, and to watch them grow in their relationship with our Lord. Leading Bible studies and studying for the Bible study for me is wonderful. I enjoy it immensely. And while leading a group Bible study is definitely gratifying as I see these women growing in the Lord, I think equally gratifying is the joy of the one-on-one -on -one discipleship and mentoring opportunities with individual women. And not just the women in the church, I enjoy sharing God's word with my children and with my grandchildren. Don't forget them. They need to see you and how much you love Jesus. Now, for the next part of the question is, the most difficult challenge in ministry, 
Do you know, as with any ministry, there are challenges that are going to vary. Um, when I was a young pastor's wife, I had one challenge that was very difficult for me, and that was comparing myself to other women who have been in the ministry longer, and they seemed like they had all their ducks in a row, and they were so deeply involved in ministry. Well, I was struggling with seeking to raise our children to love the Lord with a whole heart. I homeschooled our children, and I felt at times that I should do more than just have the occasional Bible studies or the occasional times of getting with these women. But so much of my focus was on home educating our children, on training our children, on leading our children into a closer relationship with the Lord. Again, it wasn't to the exclusion of our women, but I wasn't nearly as involved with our women then as I am now. Um, then the, we had the second challenge because it's actually twofold for me. There was the challenge when I was a young pastor's wife. Now I'm in a different phase. And like I said, our ministries change. Our seasons change. So I think probably the most difficult part of my ministry today, now, was knowing exactly where I fit because my husband's semi-retired. Uh, where he was the senior teaching pastor, the primary one, and then we had our associate pastor, then they both switched the role. And now our associate pastor is our primary teaching pastor. And my husband's the associate so knowing exactly where I fit, knowing exactly what my role was, was so difficult for me. I'm thankful my husband really humbly and graciously uh, leads and led me to help me in that area. So now I needed to know, what do I do? And you would think at my age, I would know what my role was. I asked our elders and our pastor if I still would be able to have our Bible studies and be able to stand at the door and shake hands with people because I like doing that. It's a fun thing for me to get to know people better. And to my delight, that is what I still get to do. I still get to teach women's Bible study, women's ministry, have one-on-one -on -one with women and stand at the door and, and shake hands. But I think we need to realize that with every phase of life, there are going to be challenges. There are going to be joys. There are going to be things that we're not going to know exactly what, where we fit. But we need to remember we need to be obedient. Whatever God has called you to do at whatever phase of life you're in, just walk in obedience to what God has called you to do. In Philippians 4, 11 and 12, Paul said, I have learned the secret of being content in whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. My encouragement for each of us is to learn that secret of being content in any and every situation. Your life is going to change. Your focus of ministry may change. But God will always, always 
be able to use you if you're willing to be used by him. We'll never sit back and say, I'm done. I've finished because we won't be finished until we're home with the Lord Jesus. So be content in the place that God has put you. Hello, ISCA family. For those of you who I have not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Bree and my husband is Anthony Wood. Wendy asked me the question, what are some ways that you manage your time inside the home and outside the home? And so I've written down a couple things on my iPad that I'm just going to be glancing down at. And these are four ways that help, helped me in this endeavor. So first, my goal is to be the first one up in our home each morning. I have a 12-year-old uh, daughter that is now beating me to the challenge because of our training, but it is still my goal. I love Proverbs 31.15 that talks about the wife who rises while it is still night to care for the needs of her household. And failure has taught me to be intentional with making sure that the Word is the first thing I do each morning uh, because I want my husband and my children to be greeted with Christ working through me and not the fleshly grumpy me that is focused on the million things on my to-do list for that day. Because let's face it, if I check my phone, I'm going to be just focused on the people and the schedule that can so easily take my attention um, rather than what the Lord wants me to do that day. And second, I work really hard at protecting our schedule. And what I mean by that is that I protect my calendar so that I can say yes to the most important people in my life. And early in our marriage, I asked my husband, what are the three ways that I can show you my love? And one of the uh, first things he said was a clean home. And to give you an idea of my philosophy of a clean room in college was if I shoved everything in my closet, then it was clean. And so, uh, long story short, it's been a long journey of growth but it's been a joy and a privilege uh, to grow in this area for him so that I can have an orderly home for him. Uh, third, I set up a schedule for the kids and I that are mission-oriented each day. And so, for example, here's our June calendar. But at the top of each day of the week, um, I have just our focus. And so, for example, for Sundays um, is our focus is just specifically on um, the Lord and the body of Christ and um, Mondays are t is Tony's days off so we make that just our family day. Uh, Tuesdays are days for hosting youth Bible studies at the home and then Wednesdays are a day in the community so whether it's at our local retirement home or visiting our neighbors uh, we try to make an effort there and then Thursdays are our days uh, where we are at our co-op. And so we really strive to just be serving our friends. On um, Friday is our catch-all day. And then Saturdays is just our prep day and project love day um, going into Sunday. Um, but it has been very helpful just to have a goal for each day of the week. And um, lastly, in this season of life, I've committed to caring for the needs of our pastor elder wives and helping with just different needs that arise on Sunday mornings. Um, allotting a day each week for counseling and discipleship meetings has been really helpful so that um, I'm not fearing 
man and allowing my schedule to be uh, overrun by things outside the home, but trying to have um, just my, my energy allotted where I can in this season of life. But I pray this has been helpful for those of you who are starting the journey. Uh, we miss you all, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the convention. Bye-bye. As the wife of a man in ministry and the mom of four children, I well remember the struggle it was to keep family life and ministry life in balance. It can be a bit tricky. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, it can be a bit of a challenge to keep it all in balance at times. For me, setting my priorities and then trying to stick to those priorities helped me to create some balance in our lives. After taking care of my own spiritual life, my husband was my first priority. And I took this out of scripture. In Genesis 2, God said he looked, had been looking at everything and everything was good. But then all of a sudden he saw that Adam was alone and he said that wasn't good. And so he created a helpmeet suitable for him. I believe that I am my husband's helpmate suitable for him. And so he is my number one priority in ministry. My children came next. I think that in today's society, we often see these two things flipped. We see where the children are the priority and not the husband. And I think that this is backwards. And it's something that we need to remember that our husband's needs come over those of our children. I want to talk just for a moment about children and ministry. We had a saying in our lives that went something like this. Sometimes we have to do things because daddy is a minister. But sometimes we do things not because he's the pastor, but because we are believers and we are active people in this church. I think that children need to know that not everything is about Daddy being the pastor. They need to be active and involved simply because they are believers and because it takes everybody working together in a church body to make it happen and to make things work. We might say something like this to our kids, even if Daddy weren't the pastor, we would be doing this. I think also it's okay to remember that your children need to sacrifice occasionally. Our people in our church sacrifice all the time. They sacrifice to give to us. They sacrifice Saturdays sometimes to come to the church and work or to be active and involved in something. Our children need to know that they are not the only ones that sacrifice. They are not the only ones that give up. It's important that we teach them to be an active part of their church. And after that, then the priority was the church and my ministry within the church. Let me just give you a couple of tools that you can use or guides that you can do that might help you know what things to be involved in and maybe what things you need to just let go. First, let me ask, what are you gifted at? 
when you do something, do you walk away going, oh, I'm glad that's over. That was such a difficult thing. Or do you walk away feeling energized and even maybe refreshed by having done it? For me, that was teaching. I love to teach with a passion. I love organizing and putting my thoughts down and then being able to share them. And so teaching was a priority. That meant that it was truly a priority in ministry. There are things I didn't feel were my gifting. Sometimes I had to do them as well. But I tried to stick to it, including teaching everywhere we went, because that kind of filled up my emotional tank, if you might want to say it that way. The next thing I wanted to kind of bullet point to say was, for me, Part of my ministry to the church was making sure that Bob knew that I had the children taken care of. They needed to know that um, Bob was available to them because I was available to take care of my children. It also meant that I kept my house clean and neat and ready for company. Was it spotless all the time? No, but it was never so chaotic and such a disaster that people didn't feel free to stop by occasionally. It was my way of making sure that Bob and I could practice hospitality. The last thing I wanted to share when you are struggling with trying to balance ministry is every time you see a need, that does not mean that you need to meet that need. Sometimes there are things that, yes, it would be nice to have done, but if other people don't step forward, that does not mean that I have to be the one to step forward and fill that need or fill that want in the church. Sometimes it is just a matter of want rather than need. Let me close by saying there will come a time when your kids will be raised. Your home life will be quiet and life will look very different. Your ability to go out and minister and do it more freely will happen. But this is a season in your life. Embrace it, enjoy it, and know that your first priority of your husband and your kids and then church family will be okay. Hi ladies, it's such a joy to be joining you virtually at this year's IFCA convention. Let me start by introducing myself. My name is Tiffany Nykam, and my husband and I, along with our four children, serve the Lord in southwestern China. Wendy asked me to share on the topic, How to Respond When God Changes Your Plans. Probably all of us, in one way or another, have experienced a change of plans this year. Whether it be postponed graduations, having to change the date of a wedding, or switching to all online streamed services each Sunday. Even the IFCA convention itself had to be changed to a completely different format to accommodate for the COVID-19 event. To give a little backstory on myself and our family, we returned to the U.S. for a furlough in October of last year with plans to go back to China in February of this year. As you know, that's when the virus really started to break out in China and things started changing. The world watched as China dealt with the fallout of the virus and then as it spread to other countries, including the U.S. Shortly after, China closed their borders to all foreigners, and they're still closed today. 
we found ourselves very suddenly, temporarily unable to return to the country where God had called us. A good friend of mine named Michelle served with her husband and family in Wales for several years, and she calls moments like these snow globe moments. It's in those times where our lives seem settled, and we know our plans, and we're working our plans, and we're comfortable, and the snow is just perfectly settled in our little life globe. Then God. He comes along and shakes up our snow globe. Suddenly the pieces are flying and it seems like chaos to us in that moment. But God can see the true beauty of a moment like that because he knows the change that he is working in us in those moments if we let him. One of the challenges my husband gave to our coworkers and myself as we found ourselves suddenly stuck in America was to look for God's hand in the midst of it all. Oftentimes, when a change happens, it's so easy to focus on the change itself and the inconveniences that it brings and our emotional response to that. But to take the time to really see God working in that moment. Who did he send to speak an encouraging word to you? How did he encourage your heart? What verse did he use to give you comfort and strength? Because in those moments, through all those changes, he is still there. One of my favorite verses is 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God will remain faithful to us in all of life's changes because it is his very character, and he never changes. Even if I choose to be unfaithful in that moment and let my thoughts become anxious and run with questions and doubts like, you know, what's going to happen to our visa and when are the borders going to reopen? How are we going to get back? What about all these relationships that we've been investing in in China? Even in that moment, um, with all my anxious thoughts, God is still faithful to me, faithfully loving me, patient with me, um, upholding me with his righteous right hand. And most importantly, in ways beyond all that we can understand or imagine, God is faithful to use those upheavals in our lives to bring himself glory, the glory that only he deserves. And so taking my focus off the crisis and putting it on Christ, I was suddenly able to see all the ways that he was providing for our family, the house and the vehicle that were still available to us during our extended stay in the U.S. I was able to look back on our past two years of ministry in China and, and see all those opportunities we had to really pour into the leadership of the locals and say, maybe those, that was God really preparing their hearts for this time when they would really need to be stepping up to the plate in our absence. And I was so thankful. We could not have seen this change coming, but God did. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I think the real question that surfaces in times of change is, do I really fully trust in the sovereignty of God or not? Change has a way of refining us in ways that the greener pasture times just do not. Do I fully trust that God is in control? It's a humbling thought, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon said, When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the peace that comes when we really rest in God's sovereignty? And so we make our plans, and that's good, and that's important. But something happens 
when our plans change that causes us to really tune into the fact that ultimately God is in control and He is establishing our steps. And in every obstacle, every detour, and every delay, He will continue to establish our steps until we rest in Him complete. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So I hope you find encouragement in this today, during those snow globe moments of your life, whether it be finding out a loved one has cancer, a sudden change in ministry, a family crisis, or even a worldwide pandemic. We can know that God reigns supreme over all of it and that he has plans and purposes in it for our good and for his glory. Hi, my name is Lisa DeYoung, and my husband is the pastor at Westchester Bible Church in Westchester, Illinois. I've been asked to provide some tips for being in a season of ongoing illness. I want to give you a little bit of history into my life that explains why I was asked to do this for you. After our fourth child was about one year old, I became very, very ill and it became a serious season of ongoing illness for me. We began the testing and the doctor after doctor after doctor visit and multiple other things just trying to figure out what was causing the illness for me. Finally, in May of 2014, the official diagnosis was reached. I had a chronic illness called rheumatoid arthritis. It was very difficult to hear that that was my illness because it was not curable, which meant that my season of illness would be ongoing for the rest of my life. Over the last six years since my diagnosis, there have been a lot of things that I have learned. I'm just going to share with you three tips that I have that mean a lot to me during my ongoing illness. First and foremost, I'm going to say, pray for direction in your care. James says that if you lack wisdom, ask. There will be thousands of recommendations that you receive for very well-meaning people who truly care for you. And maybe they know someone who has the same illness, know someone who has a similar illness, they may be pointing you in a, this direction or that direction, all in an attempt to help you. And they genuinely care and want to help you. But it's overwhelming. And so the best advice that I can give you is as you seek the wisdom of what to do with your care, is pray and ask God for that direction. The second item is to seek encouragement in God's word. Dig in. There is hope. And that hope comes from God's word. One example is 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul addresses having a thorn in his flesh. We're not sure exactly what that thorn in the flesh is, but we do know that in verse 8 and 9, it says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
as Paul shares that with us, he explains that he asked three times for that thorn to be removed, and it wasn't. But God said, my grace is sufficient. That's an encouragement. There are many, many more examples of that. You look at David's life and the sufferings he went through, and Job. There's so much that you can glean. The Psalms are full of hope whenever you are discouraged from suffering. I encourage you to dig in. There is hope in God's word. The other tip that I would give is that it's okay to say no. When you are suffering from an ongoing illness, it is very difficult to not get bogged down in trying to hold so many things on your plate that you can't possibly accomplish it all. So you have to step back and recognize that there are new limitations because of your ongoing illness and that it's okay to say no when you need to say no. You also need to remember to say yes when you need to say yes because ministry and your call to serve the Lord does not cease simply because you have an ongoing illness. If you are married, I encourage you to address this with your husband. He will be there to help you and he knows you better than anyone else. So he knows when you have too much on your plate. He knows when you're not doing enough. And he can help gauge that for you in order for you to be able to set those priorities that fit a new life with an ongoing illness. Finally, I want to say that those three things seem very much like something that everybody should be doing in their spiritual walk, because it is. When you have an ongoing illness, those three things become so crucial for you because you need to cling to Christ who is your hope and who is your strength and who is the one that is going to carry you through the illness. That is what you learn from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and others who have sufferings throughout the scripture. I want to say that this is just the tip of an iceberg of what I would like to share with you. If you are someone who is suffering in a season of ongoing illness, please know that you're not alone. First and foremost, God is standing beside you. He walks beside you daily. Secondly, I want to encourage you and I want to pray for you if you need that. I set up a special email account specifically for this so that you would be able to reach out to me. It is Lisa Young Ministry at gmail.com. That is L I S A D E J O N G Ministry at gmail.com. Feel free to contact me and I will pray for you. But please remember you're not alone, you're loved, and as sisters in Christ, we walk through this together. Hi, my name is Nancy Anderson, and my husband Jeff and I live in Colorado Springs, where he was a pastor for 25 years, and now he ministers with International Bible Conference, training national pastors, and he also works with our U.S. congressman as his senior faith-based advisor. 
When I think of the question, how to be an encouragement to your husband during difficult times, the first thing that comes to my mind is respect. In Ephesians 5, 33, we as wives are commanded to respect our husbands. Especially during a difficult time, he will feel like his self-confidence, his ego, and his sense of masculinity are being attacked. If he doesn't feel respected, he doesn't feel respectable. So a wife becomes a well, like a source of self-confidence for him. No one can give a man that self-confidence, make him feel like he measures up, or just make him feel more like a man than his wife can. One way we can help our husbands through a difficult time and show respect is in our words. This includes the words we say to him and the words we say about him. In Proverbs 12:4, the Bible says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. This gives us wives a tremendous power. We can make our husbands feel like the king of the world, or we can make them feel torn down and like rottenness in their bones. And that's very sobering to think of the power that we have with even the words that we say. And the words of affirmation that we can give him and words of encouragement will go a long way toward making him feel like we are a crown to him and in helping him through those difficult times. It's not only the words that we say, but also words that maybe we can write in an encouraging note to him and write him those notes of encouragement that can make him feel like he is, again, the king of the world and encourage him in those difficult times. So we could also use our words in protecting and defending him to others if necessary. We need to have his back during those difficult times. And if family doesn't have his back, and more specifically his wife, then he will feel very defeated. And then we can do that, and that will go a long way into making him feel that encouragement during those difficult times. We can also be respectful by complimenting him and not competing against him. We need to be the helper God created and designed us to be. We don't want to do anything manipulative or coercive or trying to get our own way. Sometimes when we go through difficult times, a wife can be a manipulative in a way that we can do something to help us out and to get our own way. And that's not what this should be about. This should be about doing these for our husbands and doing everything we can to support him and not trying to get our own way in things. The last reminder I'll mention where we can show respect to our husbands is in our physical response to him. When we hug and hold hands, and even when we're sitting in church or sitting somewhere and we lean into him, that is going to give him tremendous confidence. And again, this goes back to making him feel like the king of the world, like we're that crown to him. And this will make him feel very respected, and it will make him give him a lot of confidence. In this area, also our sexual response to him is extremely important, and it will go a long way in making him feel respected. Sometimes, if our husbands are going through a difficult time, they might lash out in anger and frustration at us. And this is tough, but the Bible doesn't just tell us to respect our husbands when they're being respectable. The Bible commands us to be respectful to our husbands no matter what. 
do whatever we can to show him respect in these and other areas. We need to pray for him. We need to pray that God will work in his heart and bring him back to where he needs to be, maybe spiritually or mentally, emotionally, or in whatever area that he might be struggling in during these difficult times. We should all be using our power as a wife to be a crown to our husbands. Doing this and showing him respect will go a long way in helping him through these difficult times. Hi, I'm Kimberly Dietz. My husband and I have been in ministry together for 18 years and are currently at Whitneyville Bible Church just outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Wendy has asked me to speak on what I prefer to do for women's Bible studies. Do I prefer using a study book, a topical study, or do I prefer going through a book of the Bible? The answer is yes. I like both and I have used both. Early in our ministry, I had a lady come to me who had been given a book to study, and it used a book of a version of the Bible that she was unfamiliar with, and she wanted to know if she should trust the book. I suggested to her that she could use the book, but she should look up the scriptures in the book for herself and see if they had been used in context and applied properly. This thought had never occurred to her. As I've gone through ministry the last 18 years, I have discovered that there are many women in her shoes who have never thought about whether or not they should study out things to see if they are true biblically for themselves. In Acts 17, Luke talks about the Bereans. Here they had Paul preaching to them and his team, and they still were not just taking in the teaching. They were going back to Scripture for themselves to see if it was trustworthy information that Paul was teaching them. And this is something I have tried to instill in our women. The source outside of the Bible cannot just flat out be trusted. And we've seen in recent years that sometimes even some formerly trusted biblical leaders have taken some turns that we cannot agree with. So this is important, even if we've read the author before. In my early years of teaching, I often used topical books. It was much easier for being in the stage of having young children and all the demands that family takes with young children. And it was nice to have a book that had study guides given and that took a little bit less work up front for me as the teacher. That also gave me the opportunity to teach the women, okay, I did appreciate what the author said, but I don't feel that this verse was the proper verse to use for that point. But we can see that it's a biblical principle because we see this principle taught in these other passages, and we would discuss that. And that's a very useful tool to teach the ladies. However, the feedback that I've had on Bible studies is that the women always prefer a book of the Bible study the best. And I think it's because we get the full picture of what the author was teaching and of what God was trying to teach us, rather than just taking one portion of the book. Um, My first book of the Bible we studied was Proverbs, um, a very common one. It was great to get into it in depth. It was very work intensive, both for me setting up study guides and for the women. Um, 
We had a little bit higher dropout rate on that one. Um, some of that may have been due to my greenness in setting up Bible studies at the time, but the feedback was good for those who stuck through it. The best study we had feedback on was actually led by one of our other elders' wives, and that was a study of the book, By His Stripes We Are Healed, and it was a study of Ephesians written by Wendy Alsop Horger. The feedback on that was excellent. Everybody appreciated the time to thoroughly understand the book of Ephesians. Um, we had several women ask, hey, can we just keep on going? Can we just restart the study next Tuesday and continue on? This was so good. Um, that one was a lot less work intensive because it came with the study guide. But those study guides of Bible books are very few and far between. Um, so the con in conclusion, I would say yes, both are very useful tools. The topical studies are great if you have something your women are struggling with and you need to go through with it. Or if you're in a stage where you just don't have the time, you have demands at home or you have other demands in the ministry and you need something a little bit more ready to run with, topical studies out of books are excellent resources for those situations. But to really get to the depth of what the Bible says, I strongly encourage you to do the studies of the Bible. A tool that I have found useful with doing these studies is my husband's sermon notes. Um, I have often gone to him and said, hey honey, could I have your notes off of this sermon or off of that topic? So we don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel to do a Bible book study. Um, use the resources you have, use the other women you have, Whatever you do, teach the women to love the scripture and to search it for themselves. Hi, IFCA ladies. My name is Cindy Zobrist, and my husband is the senior pastor of Liberty Bible Church of Eureka, Illinois. And we've been here for almost 32 years in a small rural community about two hours south of Chicago. We have probably about 5,300 in our town, but really draw from several other communities and have a church of around 350 people on a given Sunday. I was given the question, um, how do you encourage women to carry out good ideas when they are just expecting you to begin any new ministry or program? Okay, so my thought was, the key word in that question is encourage. I really do count it a privilege to come alongside our ladies and encourage them. There are so many ways to encourage our ladies without allowing them to place those really unrealistic expectations on us. And I would say um, my first priority is the spiritual growth and, and enhancement of each lady's walk with the Lord. As we disciple our ladies, we need to take great care to build them up in the body of Christ. Definitely not tear them down. Titus 2 tells us, we as older women, which most of you are all older women, especially if you're um, in ministry, you will have the opportunity to disciple no matter your age. You are an older woman, whether it's in age or in um, a spiritual walk with the Lord. So um, as we and we as older ladies are to admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, 
chaste homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And so as we work with ladies of all stages of growth, we must consider how we are to respond appropriately with the goal of helping them and others to grow. So I, I really do try never to discourage good, quote, good ideas, but also always consider them or weigh them sort of with the ministry that we already currently have. Many times good ideas are difficult to actually put into place because of limitations, either with personnel, finances, time restrictions, or simply impractical in our current ministry. Without discouraging them, I try to evaluate whether that is a doable thing in our already established organizational structure also. We have, we have a women's ministry already established. We've established that quite a long time ago. Um, that's broken down into two areas, discipleship and service ministries. We have a, coordin a coordinator for both discipleship and service ministries and several leaders in each ministry. The great thing about having already established ministries is that, is that we already have a team of leaders in place and most of the time any new idea falls under one of those ministries. We would first direct the idea person to the lady in charge of that specific area and then form a committee if necessary to execute anything new. Also, anytime we have new ideas or new ministries, it always must run through our pastor because he is the elder who oversees all of our women's ministries. I think that really, really helps us protect. It helps protect me or any of our ladies from expectations that really are unrealistic. So, some questions I may ask them are, what are you seeing that makes you think we need this ministry? Another question, what is the reason why you think we need this ministry? And what is their, maybe get to what their motivation is. Many times we, we personally, like as a pastor's wife or someone in ministry, may not have a burden or even a desire for a certain ministry or event. I may feel as though we are spread really too thin, but if someone comes to you with that idea, it might be a perfect um, opportunity for, to get them involved. Um, for example, we recently were approached by one of our young moms, which I'm seriously way past that, to have a moms group. Well, we had this ministry um, uh, several years ago, and it ended because of lack of interest. So we were kind of like, mm, I'm not sure about this. Well, she really had a burden for this, has a burden for this ministry again, and had some really great ideas and sort of a new way to reorganize it. So we asked her to do it, and she was thrilled um, to be able to follow that up with physical plans for the get-togethers and, of course, um, online challenges, all of the above, um, which is a, um, definitely something that is needed, especially nowadays. So oftentimes, people come to us from varying backgrounds and sometimes other churches, they may have had a lot of great experience in um, ministries and bring new things that we have not even thought of before. 
We should always be open to new ideas, but weigh them with all the other ministries we already have. The key is balance. Jumping in with both feet can be dangerous, but not even being willing to touch the water is too. Whenever anyone has an idea, it should be understood by all your people, men or women, that they can and should help carry it out. Our job as pastor's wives, or anyone in ministry really, is to try to direct our people to where God would have them minister in the body of Christ. We, or they, may not have gifts in certain areas, but someone else does. And it could be God leading us to do something new, and they could be the one to do it. So I hope that answers that question somewhat for you. Um, I'm excited to hear what anybody else's thoughts are on that, and I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bye.